Everyone, welcome back to America, Mao and the Metaverse with the two Pauls. Mr. Schulte calling in from Spain. I'm currently in London. Both of us are probably far enough away from Ukraine to keep us safe, Paul. But before we dive into the whole Russia-Ukraine thingy, let's talk about the Federal Reserve. Let's talk about inflation. And I know that you and I both separately did some work on this in the last, in the last week or so. Let's start with your thoughts. I think inflation is peaking. I think we've had peak interest rate hawkishness, as was reflected last Thursday when we had this 7.5% inflation print. I think we've reached peak inflation and peak hawkishness. Um, but love, love to hear your view and love to hear about what you think the Fed's reaction function is going to be in the, in the weeks ahead with the first meeting and months ahead after that. Yeah. So, yeah, on my client base, I would say that is very definitely uh, a minority opinion. First of all, what you what you said, mm -hmm. I have I have some sympathy with it. Number two, I see again, I've been saying this all along. Rising interest rates and reducing the balance sheet are two different things. And so normalizing interest rates is maybe something that you know is going to happen and, and but I'm, we're not going to get seven rate increases forget it you, you might get three so I, I agree there but as i said i've been looking at banks for like 15 16 years and when, when and i was at lehman brothers and i i remember an important meeting in april of 2008 where i said you guys do realize that banks balance sheet is not designed to shrink because when you start shrinking it, you immediately eat into capital. You immediately cause asset value write-downs. And then the write-downs cause capital losses, right? And the lower capital causes leverage to go up, which means you have to either raise equity or something has to go wrong, right? Yeah. And so I think that the... And again, I, I remember I was with somebody from Capital. We were at a live meeting in... Hong Kong with the guy who was the head of the IMF's central bank liaison. And we asked him, and he was a 25-year veteran of central bank balance sheets, so a real sharp, sharp man. And I asked him, what are the three countries in the world that have had exit of QE? And this was back in 2008. And he said, well, from my recollection, there's three, Nicaragua, Lebanon, and another one, <laughs> another disastrous country. And we're like, what? Oh, Philippines, 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 right. Philippines, Nicaragua, and Lebanon. He said, but don't forget, uh, Lebanon exited QE when it had three central banks. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, uh oh, this doesn't sound very good. So literally, we have very little experience, if any, of a modern central bank exiting a balance sheet, right? In other words, having a normalization of the balance sheet. And, and of course, Japan has tried this for 20 years, and, and Japan has only ever been able to increase the balance sheet because inflation is a year-on-year -year phenomenon, right? Right. And in order to keep on having an inflationary impulse, you have to have a year-on-year -year increase. Mm -hmm. And if you have a year-on-year -year decrease, you're going to get uh, deflationary impulses almost instantaneously. So people have to understand that. And I think the Federal Reserve understands this. But you can't just go around having emergency meetings like you had on Monday and then say, well, wow, we had an emergency meeting and we have our hand on the fire alarm, but we think everything's okay. And it's like, well, then why did you have an emergency meeting? And, and, and all they're going to do is say, well, we're going to just tell you that we're going to have a rate increase in March, but everyone knew that anyways. And so it's like, what? in the hell is going on here? What kind of message are you sending out? And so uh, that creates incoherence and it 
creates nervous investors. But there was a lot of relief. Right. So, mate, answer one question for me. And again, it goes back to my inherent biases. My inherent bias, number one, is I do not believe that money printing creates inflation. Right now, that's probably for a guy who lives in Chicago. That's probably a bad, probably not a sustainable thing to have. If you want to keep your residency of Chicago, I look at Japan, I look at the EU, I look at the separate, several iterations of QE in the United States, and we haven't had, I believe personally, we haven't had inflation because of that. Right? We can argue. Let's we can argue the toss there. But let's get back to something fundamental in your conversation. Why does the Fed need to shrink its balance sheet? Right? Yeah, you've alluded to this. Right? The Japanese, the Japanese never shrunk their balance sheet, right? Never shrunk their balance sheet outside of some organic stabilization and, and maturity roll-offs and the like, but never hit the bid in the market. Outside of the very, I think, dubious arguments for moral hazard and crowding out, which I think very, you know, I can't name examples in the in big economies where that happens. Why does the Fed need to shrink its balance sheet? Why can't these bonds just sit there and eventually roll off? and organically just tighten financial conditions incrementally at the margin, if at all, over a long period of time, by a long period of time, say a decade? Why do they need to shrink the balance sheet? That's a good question. I think you answered it by what you said, and and you you, you kind of just threw out like those uh, throwaway arguments like moral hazard and market discipline and all that kind of crap. Our friend and yours, Simon Ogus, always said, capitalists on the way up and we're socialists on the way down, yeah. right? I mean, everybody got a bailout in 2008. Don't tell me this is a market economy when everybody got bailed out in 2008, including GE. So it was the same thing with Andrew Mellon and those guys in the 20, late 20s and 30s. You got to have the market clear. You got to have market discipline. And, and they drove America into World War II with that imposition of market discipline. And of course, they went after those guys and arrested all of them. And so I think there is a philosophical sense of discipline. All of my friends who are like, wonder about these Austrians is like, what is up with the Austrians? They're really into like discipline and and punishment. (laughs) What is up with these people? (laughs) Probably more ways than one. (laughs) I know, right? There's just like some weird S&M thing going on here. And so so it's, it's the Austrian punishment that makes me like, are you kidding me? There, there's so much collusion and, and oligopolistic behavior and government, you know, mandated licenses and franchises that are given out to the private sector. And the defense establishment is like one of the bulwarks of the entire private sector of the United States and so forth and so on. And, you know, in fact, the American economy is like 42 percent of the American economy is government spending. So don't tell me we have some like pure private sector market discipline thing. That is just the biggest joke I've ever heard. And of course, all that propaganda comes from right y- your neighborhood, from the University of Chicago, yep. Milton Friedman group and his groupies, right? So and Ayn Rand was a huge mentor to Alan Greenspan. And I think her literature is appropriate for like uh, sophomore sophomores in high school, but not for grown adults. And so the Fed does not need to shrink the balance sheet. I I utterly agree with you. However, the reason why this stuff is not inflationary is because the money that that is in the Fed's balance sheet falls off of the banking system into the, the Fed's balance sheet as voluntary reserves. The Fed is not drawing that money in. It is falling off the bank balance sheet. It's a market clearing mechanism, right? If you don't put that money in the Fed's balance sheet, rates will turn negative because there's so much cash in the system 
from 40 years of credit creation. Yeah. Money creation comes from credit creation. Money, does, money creation does not come from the Fed. It comes from credit creation of the private sector banking system. Mm -hmm. And we've had such an explosion of credit creation that there's just so much cash. That's why the banks have got these like crazy low, like 65% loan to deposit ratios. Where, where HSBC has $250 billion in cash. JP Morgan has probably like $80 billion in cash. And a lot of that is sitting at the Fed. Because if you don't do that, US rates will turn negative. And what do negative rates do? Negative rates destroy banking systems. So the money must be at the Fed. So this is not necessarily something that's a nice option. This is, uh, this is like what happens. This is the math. Right, you have to have a, a a quantity of supply and demand of money to make that price positive, to make the rate of money more than zero. Now, and Europe, but I'm getting, didn't do I'm getting this. off track here. I'm getting off track here a little bit, but I want to go back a little bit to last week's conversation about the Hamilton, about Project Hamilton, right? And for those who are unaware, Project Hamilton, Boston, Boston Fed white paper on on the digital on the digital dollar, and I think pretty safe to say that Paul, you both, you and I sort of poo pooed that quite a bit, but. Have we just answered the question of why the digital dollar was going to be so dominated by commercial banks in the United States? Because that is exactly that exactly the answer. The health in the system. That put it this way: a digital dollar that could be circumvented, where you didn't need wallets, where you could use wallets outside of the Federal Reserve. Basically, does that imply we'd almost go instantaneously to negative interest rates? Well, that's right, exactly. And so, in other words, the disintermediation of the banks by, by right? So, so the way that money's created is by fractional reserve banks who have like leverage of 12. The leverage is really low right now. It's at like 50-year lows, like even 60-year lows. And so that's exactly right, Paul. What you've got basically is if the money leaves the banks, that, that fractional reserve money creation, right? The, the, the high-powered high money, that, that disappears. Yep. And I think that's really what the banks were worried about. And having a, a, a Hamilton dollar exactly solves that problem. You don't right. have any money that's operating outside of a fractional reserve bank that's giving that high-powered credit creation, which is money creation, right? So I think you're absolutely right on the money on that. And China, I think China had to really struggle with that with Alibaba and Tencent. And China had to finally decide what we thought we were going to do this with Tencent and Alibaba. We're not. It's going to come through the PBOC. Alibaba and Tencent can do it, but it's going to go through the banks. Right. And mm. and I think I think everybody is afraid that if you have some sort of coin, right, some sort of e-coin, e-currency coin, right, from a central bank, if it operates outside of the um, of the commercial banking system, the money multiplier collapses even more. And we are at a multi-decade low on the money multiplier anyway. Right. right. The money and multiplier and is broken. And there's your answer why. If you had a normalized money multiplier with this much QE, 7% inflation probably wouldn't be the number. It would probably some sort of multiple of multiple of that, right? So we'll give Mr. Freedom a little bit of credit for uh, for that, but he didn't see he didn't see the disconnect between the money multiplier going to going to 50-year lows and the amount of money printing that we've seen. So the Fed's meeting on March 16, probably the difference between a, if, if, if a 50 basis point hike is priced by the market, the Fed will go with 50, right? Because again, if, if the market is pricing 50 and they only go 25, that's a de facto easing, you know, at the, at the margin, right? Versus, versus where market expectations are. Um, 
But you said I don't think they will. I don't think they will. I don't think they will. Paul, let me tell you why. I added up all the losses of the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ, and the combined losses of those three since the beginning of the year is probably somewhere around $2.8 to $3 trillion has been evaporated. And a lot of that is retail money. These retail guys in these spivvy, bullshit, mid-cap and small-cap stocks, especially these IPOs of the last 12 to 18 months, which I have essentially savaged in my research. I thought all, most of it was just, just a, it was a giveaway to private equity, unfortunately. And the investment banks were working for private equity. They were not working for the, the public markets. They've undermined public markets, right, by their, their slavishness to absurd valuations from private equity. So there's that. Plus, don't forget, Paul, we've gone up almost 80 basis points on the 10-year, right? And we've gone up almost 100 basis points on the two-year. Look at the 30-year mortgage, too. I looked at the 30-year mortgage. I couldn't believe the 30-year mortgage has gone from like 3.3 to 4.1. There has been a tremendous tightening already in the system. The 30-year, the 20-year, the 10-year, the two-year, and the three-month, right? And so the two-year, 10-year yield curve is still positive, right? But it's gone from like 120 down to like 50 basis points now, right? And 50 is 50 is kind of, it's kind of on the low side, but it's it's down hugely from 120. And so so there's been a huge crunch in markets for sure, right? And then credit spreads have gone up a little bit, but the high yield market is still behaving well. I'm going to give you like four reasons I picked up over the weekend why we don't right? I don't think we're having a recession anytime soon, which is leading economic indicators are still like all-time high. Unemployment is still like an all-time low. The credit creation is working. The yield curve is still in positive territory. The three-month, 10-year is still in pretty positive territory. We've got a lot of these traditional indicators that are showing that things are rocking along pretty nicely. Yeah. So, so I think we do have a recession, but not till late next year. And I think it's I think it's driven by the fiscal compression that comes when the Republicans take the House. Because I think you could see the fiscal deficit go from 12% of GDP to 5% of GDP pretty much overnight, which is an enormous contraction in in, in the fiscal impulse. Look, I, I I think that's fair that there's no sort of outlook for a recession in the near term. Here's here's the issue for me about and why I believe in peak hawkishness, right? Again, simple mathematics. Ten-year bond yield roughly below, a little bit below two percent. Yeah, well, sorry, it's at two percent currently. Right, currently at, at the peak of the hawkishness of last Thursday, there were seven rate priced into to this current calendar year. Right, if you were to take make, take that to eight, you would have an inverted yield curve. Right now, mm-hmm. why is that important? Now there have been five instances of yield curve inversion since 1982, and all of them within a matter of weeks, five months was the longest, but within a matter of weeks for most, the Fed was cutting rates, right? So if you think about where we are in terms of yield curve, there's two very unique scenarios about this cycle. One is that the yield curve at roughly two tens at 40 basis points is one of the flattest yield curves that we've ever had at the commencement of a tightening cycle. And secondly, with inf- the only thing that is certain at the moment is that every central bank, investment banking analyst, and an independent economist on the planet has inflation falling in, through the course of 2022 because of base effects. The Federal Reserve has never, and I stress never, started the tightening cycle as inflation was peaking. And again, it's at a high base. I get that. 
Uh, are they behind the curve? They should have been raising rates a year ago, right? We can say that with the value of hindsight. But if the Fed is a forward-looking, if, if the Fed is a forward, a policy rate is a forward-looking mechanism, the Fed has never started raising rates as inflation is peaking, right? So at a minimum, we're all about market pricing, right? So you know whether we get five, whether we get seven, that's not the point. The point I'm making is that we're not going to price any more than seven, which means, right, we've got peak interest rate hawkishness, right? Which means this value to growth rotation that we've seen, that loses its impetus of higher interest rates. You, you answer this question for me. I think I know the answer. Would you want to own a bank right now if, if, if the market is pricing in seven hikes and we only get three? You want to own the banking system on the back of that? Do you want to own the banking system on the back of a, of a twos 10 spread that could go to, that could invert, right? Traditional banks, you don't want to own that stuff with here. So, so the point I'm making is that I'm getting very constructive on growth equity again, right? But after the Federal Reserve, after the Fed meeting on the sixth on the um, in mid-March on the 15th and 16th, because that's when you'll get confirmation that you're not going to get seven hikes this year, right? You're probably going to get five. And you'll get five into a declining inflationary environment, which I think is is very under not discussed enough. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think when they're done with their Austrian self-flagellation and punishment thing, whatever that weirdo thing is, they're just going to have to cut rates all over again, right? Because I remember Powell back in 2000 and you know, pretty much 17 was saying, you know what, we're just going to be on autopilot with rate increases and we're good with that. And I thought that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard because you're just going to blow the whole thing up. And of course, it blew up. And so he knows that you can't just go around saying things like that, right? And, and come on, Paul. I mean, one of the things that we talk about, the IMF did not even bring it up in its latest quarterly report. It didn't even bring it up as the number one risk. They put the number one risk like as Russia or something like that, something idiotic. We, we have $300 trillion in debt on planet Earth right now. And, and Mars and Venus are not going to be buying Earth debt anytime soon. 300 trillion. And that went up $40 trillion during COVID. Boy, oh boy, normalizing interest rates is a great idea. Not. And mate, look, and you and I can have the argument as we just did, whether the Fed has to unwind, does it need to shrink its balance sheet and the like? But that's the Federal Reserve, which is, you know, the ultimate, you know, it's the the the, the central bank of the gov of the country that prints the world's most dominant currency, right? But in terms of rolling over variable mortgages, whether it's triple C credit companies trying to roll over junk bond, junk bond debt, a higher cost of money matters. And it's not, and let's face it, all that 300 trillion, that's not in question. But you're not saying that, right? But a portion of it is. And a portion of it has to be rolled, right? And at the end of the day, I may not believe in, in all of what Professor Friedman has to say, but if you've got a highly indebted society and you raise the cost of money, that does create problems at the margin. Simple as that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And also, you're talking about refunding junk debt, of course, refunding government debt. And of course, the higher that those interest rates go, more and more the government pie has to go into interest expense. And that's where you can get even greater social disorder when you have to keep on cutting programs to service government debt. That is a really big social problem, and Japan understands that. Right. Mm. Japan has to keep and, 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 and when you understand that, you need to be very careful about how you want to raise rates. Nominal rates are so low in Japan because the government can't afford to. Right. If you normalized rates to like four percent, right, almost the, like the entire yeah. Japanese budget would be interest expense. Right. You wouldn't be able to yeah. have any programs. 
And so, so this is also a consideration. And so and that's why so, actually declining bad demographics and, and a declining birth rate and po- declining population, which we'll see Japan by 2050 probably at a, have a population 15% less than it is today, is actually mm-hmm. the solution for Japan's problem. It becomes a smaller, a smaller you know, niche, you know, niche economy. When you and I were first starting in the industry, Japan was everything, right? Japan was Japan was everything. Man, I remember doing trips to the BOJ when I was younger, thinking I was the coolest. Coolest guy on the planet, right? Yeah. You know, does anyone go to see the BOJ? Does anyone care, right? Today, so, but by what where people do care is Russia, and we, you know, it would be remiss of us not to to talk a little bit a little bit about this. I mean, you put this in the context of a Cold War scenario in the in the past. I mean, can we question Putin's logic on why he's doing this? I mean, what what is it? 40, 45 million Russians killed in the last one hundred and sixty years through three invasions by Ukraine. Pretty, pretty. Put it in those those words, and his actions are, you know, prudent, aren't they? Yeah, and of course he's czar. He's Alexander the Second. There was an interesting thing. I, I people missed it, but in the last few days, the Duma passed uh, legislation in the Russian Duma, which basically said that the two provinces in the east, Russia, should now become independent federal states of Russia. A lot of discussion last week was on the Finlandization Russia, which is basically Finland. Russia invaded. Russia was trounced by the Finnish army because it's so damn cold. And so it was, it was, it was a disaster. They, they, they were frozen. And Finland is now basically joint governed by NATO and Russia, although Russia has basically essential rule in, in Finland, although it's joint governed. There was a lot of that. I think that transferred this week into not a joint government of Ukraine by NATO and Russia. Putin may settle for an east-west solution, like Germany, right? We're taking the east. Those are Russian population people. They're Russian speakers. That We gave them Russian passports. If you settle for giving us two states in the west, Donetsk and some other land, yep. maybe we have a deal here. And so... That is totally unacceptable to the Ukraine. But then again, so was the Czechoslovakian solution in the Sudeten agreement between England and uh, Germany when the Czechs weren't even invited to the negotiation when Czechoslovakia was split up. Very, uh, by the way, um, very, good movie, very good movie on this uh, uh, called The Road to War about at, at Munich on, uh, on Netflix currently. Yeah, very, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. yeah, I love Jeremy <laughs> Irons on that. Yeah, the Czechs weren't even invited. <laughs> So, so, so the Ukrainians might not even be invited to their own division if they have an east-west solution. I think that's what may end up happening, and that's going to have to be acceptable to both sides. I, I really, I, I've been saying this adamantly, there's not going to be a war. There's, it's, it's in nobody's interest. I mean, wars are never in anyone's interest, but this is, I just think that Putin's playing for a bargain here. And the bargain is anybody who wants to leave Russia, the Russian Federation, you're going to pay for it very dearly. And Putin has succeeded in, in destroying Ukraine. Its financial system was wrecked. Its banking system was wrecked. The ATM system was wrecked. The industrial system has been wrecked. Nobody else wants to dare leave the Russian Federation because of that. And if you have two uh, states in the East that can become sovereign parts of Russia, is the West, is NATO going to be satisfied with that? If it's de facto, maybe you have a solution. I don't know. But again, mate, what is it? I mean, what does NATO do if, if Putin goes into Donetsk and just takes Donetsk, right? Just goes in, goes into the east part of the country, takes the takes the you know is the is the is the savior of the Russian-speaking persecuted elements of of Ukraine, takes Donetsk, takes 
these part of it, but does it militarily versus the diplomatic avenues that you just alluded to? What does NATO do? Again, can sanctions be that onerous, right? My guess is that Putin is Putin is somewhat sanction sanction proof. Um, I agree. I agree. He's got his Bitcoin. He's got his his ways and means of of circumventing sanctions. China being front and center of all of that. It's not like the gas the gas is going to stop flowing and the and the payments for the gas is not going to keep flowing to China. Berlin's pretty darn cold without Russian gas in in February. Is there anything really the West can do, or does Putin have the upper hand in all of this? You know, the U.S. has been sending hundreds of millions of dollars in all kinds of military hardware to Ukrainian army, right, so that they can have a fight. 100,000 troops to invade a country the size of Afghanistan is a joke. I mean, you, you, you can get to Ukraine and you can stay for the uh, Kiev and you can stay for the weekend, but then you're going to have to leave, right? Uh, you're talking about ha- having to back up 100,000 troops with a million a million of 100,000 troops. Right, which implies that he's not going to Kiev. It implies he's just going into the east and taking the east. I doubt it. I, I doubt it. Even doing that, you're just looking at a long, bogged down civil war that's going to just drag on. And he doesn't want that. He, he wants to achieve some solution where he can get land for free. And if he just says, that, just give me Donetsk and another little area, I'm fine with that. And by the way, for Germany, Russia paid German contractors to build that pipeline, right? Russia, Germany made a ton of money out of that pipeline. And Russia wants that operational. And I think Germany wants it operational as well. And don't forget, when the German chancellor went to Washington last week to see Biden, there was not a single peep about that pipeline in any public statement between him and Biden. Very important data point. Mm-hmm. He said, we are not discussing the pipeline, right? The pipeline's a done deal. And so I don't think we're going to have a war. I just don't think we're going to have it. Well, fingers crossed, mate. How does, and how's your week looking? What's on the card for the week? We are looking at sort of bottom fishing. I'm just wondering if there's bottom fishing appropriate here. You see, uh, there's a 13F that goes out to the public documentation. And I see people are bottom fishing in Grab, for instance. Grab has had that hell kicked out of it. You're seeing a lot of other bottom fishing. And then you're seeing some major institutions also just throwing in the towel finally on stocks that have got their clock cleaned, like Twitter has been just creamed and, and many other stocks. And, and so people have exited those positions as well. So you're seeing some, some liquidation of positions where there's been big losses, finally. And you're also seeing some move into some of these stocks that are down 50, 60, 70%, including both Uber and Grab. And so that's an interesting data point. And then you're seeing some of these larger institutions scoop up some of these interesting companies. But the one, the one interesting thing, Paul, that I would say in looking at all of the 13F filings, no commodity companies. None of these guys are going into commodity companies, which is interesting. They're going into growth. So, mate, we're doing our commodity day for the mobility conference. Starts in about two hours. I'm going to give you a new acronym, MILST. Metals are important for future technologies. The new acronym du jour. Four hours of conference today, lithium, cobalt, nickel, and copper, and we'll be discussing all of them. They are now officially known as, as MILFs, M-I-L-T-S's. So the third, we, I interviewed a guy called Doug uh, Johnson, Johnson uh, Perkson, who is the CEO of a company called Circular, which is the world's best and largest blockchain-based supply chain tracing business, and they focus on batteries. Do you know the average Tesla car battery only has 12 components? I did not know that. 
12 components. That was my, that was my takeaway from Doug's, uh, Doug's presentation. And we're looking at a lot of things like battery passports and all this sort of stuff. So tracing carbon and, and whether a battery has cobalt from an artisanal mine using, sl- using, using child labour in the DRC, just some fascinating stuff going on. So uh, maybe if you've got some time later on this afternoon, pop over to the conference. We've got some great, some great guests for the next two weeks. Today is all about commodities. Well, there are a couple of things there. One is there's been a lot of talk about look at the look at the EV. The, a lot of the EV stocks are have are down some of the worst of any stocks in the market, maybe 65, 70%. And so there's some bottom fishing going on there. Are we going to have something like lithium and cobalt, blood cobalt and blood lithium to make sure that people are getting it from places where they're not well, that's you know, doing that's, terrible that's things? Why, yeah, that's why the supply chain transparency and monitoring is so is so vitally important. And that's why you're finding you know, Volkswagen, Tesla, they're all sort of adopting this, this technology to be able to trace where everything, where everything comes from. And the, um, look, the DRC is cleaning up its act, which is important. The bigger issue, though, is the amount of carbon that's being utilised to produce these batteries. So 50% of, the, 50% of the carbon to produce an electric vehicle comes from the battery of which the most, the majority, uh, yeah, little less than half of that is from nickel. So 25% of the carbon to produce in a car, an electric vehicle, comes from the nickel production, right? So that's the one that people really have to focus on in terms of you know, finding means to produce clean nickel and, and the like. And it's, it looks much longer conversation, but this, it's a smelting problem. It's all this stuff. So, but if you've got some time this afternoon, we'd love to, uh, love to have you join one of the events. Okay. Brilliant. Mate, have a great week. We'll talk to you shortly. Thank you, Paul. Great chatting as always. Great. Bye. See you guys.